morning. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that as we turn to your word, you would help us. We want to be faithful disciples. We want to walk closely with Jesus. We want to grow more and more like him. Father, we confess that in our sin, we fall short in so many ways. So, Father, use your word this morning to convict us. Use your word to point out to us where we are not living obediently. Use your word to expose ways in which we are worshiping and prioritizing ourselves instead of you. And then grant to us the grace in the gospel that we need to truly repent and change for your glory. We ask that any pride or hard-heartedness that would hinder your word from finding good soil in our hearts would be removed. We ask that you would please give us ears to hear your word. We ask all this in Jesus' name for his glory. Amen. If you would please take out your copy of the scriptures and turn to Luke chapter 9. We're going to be thinking this morning about disciples of Jesus. Both those who appear in our narrative and those of us in this room who claim to be Christians. Disciples of Jesus. Now if you were here with us last week, you will remember that last week's passage... Luke chapter 9, verses 37 to 45. Well, that wasn't exactly the disciples' finest hour. Uh, It started with the nine disciples who were left at the foot of the mountain. They are completely unable to cast out this demon because of their faithlessness and prayerlessness. And it ended with Jesus telling the disciples that he's about to be delivered over into the hands of men, but they just don't get it. I mean, they comprehend the words that are coming out of his mouth. It's not like he's speaking in a foreign language. But they just don't get it. They don't understand how it could be that Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, the Messiah of glory that some of them just saw in his splendor and majesty on that mountain, the transfiguration, well, how could it be that this glorious Messiah would be delivered into the hands of men? And going back to something that he told them earlier, remember back in verse 22? How could it be that he would be rejected, that he would suffer, and that he would be killed? Such a grim picture was awfully hard to reconcile with this popular notion of this powerful Messiah who was going to take down the Romans and establish his kingdom here and now. A notion that certainly seem to have influenced the disciples' thinking. And so, as we saw in last week's text, the disciples, they just don't get it. Well, it doesn't really get much better for them this week. It's kind of more the same. They just don't get it. Our passage for today, we're going to try to cover verses 46 through 56. It consists of three Many narratives, uh, three short little stories that all make the same point using different circumstances and different events. The, the disciples just don't get it. 
they will continue to fail and mess up and misunderstand. Now, perhaps you or I, we would have been tempted to give up on them. After this many failures, just throw in the towel, start over with a new set of hopefully more competent and more perceptive and more self-aware men. But Jesus displays his perfect patience, his forbearance here with the ones whom he's chosen. He rebukes them, he corrects them, he teaches them over and over and over that they might grow. That they might grow from being fumbling, bumbling failures to eventually becoming the men who would be the very pillars of the church. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. And so here Jesus faithfully, patiently rebukes his disciples that they might learn and grow. You've probably seen this at work in your own life. Sometimes we learn best not from sermons or Bible studies or books, but we learn best from someone who cares enough about us, lovingly coming to us, coming alongside of us in the course of life, and just giving us godly rebuke. That's exactly what we have here, times three. So let's start by just reading our text, Luke 9, 46 through 56. Look along as I read. And this is the word that God has for you this morning. An argument arose among them as to which of them was the greatest. But Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts, took a child and put him by his side and said to them, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all is the one who is great. John answered, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. But Jesus said to him, Do not stop him, for the one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them. And they went on to another village. Hopefully you picked up on them, even as we just read the text. We have here three failures by the disciples, and then three loving rebukes by Jesus. Let's consider them one at a time, and we'll look to apply the text to our own lives as disciples, even as we go along. So point number one, Jesus rebukes their pride. Jesus rebukes their pride, and we see that in this little mini-narrative in verses 46 through 48. What's going on here? Well, the disciples are arguing among themselves. Mark tells us that it happened while they were traveling. And they're arguing about which of them was the greatest. So how did we get to that kind of argument? Well, there are several elements potentially at play here. First, remember that in their minds, 
they still don't get the whole suffering and dying thing. And so they think that Jesus is going to set up a kingdom in the here and now. And so they're essentially jockeying for positioning, status, within that earthly kingdom. And second, consider that while they started with really humble roots, we've talked about this before, these guys were uneducated fishermen and tax collectors, nobodies in society back then when Jesus called them. But now they've been specially selected to be part of this inner circle, right, the twelve And Jesus gives them the power and the authority to preach and perform miracles. So now, all of a sudden, they've been infected. Delusions of spiritual grandeur. And third, consider that things like status, honor, reputation, they're always a big deal in the world, but they were especially important in the Greco-Roman culture of the day. So take a misunderstanding about the nature of the kingdom of God, add to that a misunderstanding about the power and authority that they've been given by Jesus, add to that the influence of the Greco-Roman world around them, and add to that the indwelling sin of pride in each of their hearts. You mix that all together and boom, you get an argument among them about which of them was the greatest. We can almost imagine in our mind's eye just how this conversation went. You got the 12, they're talking amongst themselves. Well, the greatest, I mean, obviously it's one of us. We're the 12, right? We're the ones that he specifically chose and all those other followers, all the other crowds, it's not them, right? We are the inner circle right here. But then among the twelve, Peter, James, and John start talking about their experience on the Mount of Transfiguration. Well, no offense, but (laughs) the greatest, you're talking about me and James and John, Peter might say. You nine, you knuckleheads couldn't even cast out that demon. So we're obviously the big three. The only question is, which one of us is number one? But then maybe Bartholomew over here, he fires back at Peter and he says, Peter, don't think we don't know about what you said on the Mount of Transfiguration. That whole thing about the tents. I don't know if I'm the greatest or not, but it's certainly not you, Peter. And so on, and so on, and so on. Friends, this is the ugly sin of pride revealing itself in this ridiculous, like almost childish argument about who is the greatest. And here's the thing, it's all the more ugly and all the more ridiculous when you juxtapose it against everything that Jesus has just taught them in this chapter. I mean, he was just literally talking to them moments ago about his humiliation, being delivered into the hands of men. But here they are, his disciples, by definition, right, those who are supposed to be following him, in, among other things, his humility. And what are they doing? He's talking about his humiliation, and they're arguing with each other about which of them is the greatest. And if you scan your eyes a little further up, Luke chapter 9, remember what he was teaching them back in verses 23 and 24? 
Following him as a disciple means denying yourself and taking up your cross daily and losing your life for his sake. Hard teachings about self-denial and self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness. And here they are, his disciples, reveling in self-exaltation. Like after everything that he's been teaching them in this chapter, for them to be arguing about this, they just don't get it. Having followed the perfect son of God for over two years, the one who, in humility, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he would humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Having followed that exemplar of humility for over two years and then to have an argument like this, like they just don't get it. And so Jesus asks them about their argument Mark tells us in his gospel that none of them wanted to fess up about what they were talking about. Look at verse 47. Jesus, knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Friends, that's a sobering thought. That's a sobering thought when it comes to our own pride, is it not? Because there's, there's the pride that we verbalize, like the disciples do here, and, and that's bad. But underneath that pride that we verbalize, well, it's out of the overflow of the heart that the mouth speaks. And so there's just like layers and layers and layers of pride that we don't verbalize. A pride that we think is hidden deep in our hearts. Where we can relish thoughts so arrogant and so proud that we would never have the audacity to say them out loud But we're reminded here that Jesus knows even those things. The reasoning of our hearts. That's sobering. And that means, by the way, that our repentance, when we repent of our pride, that's got to go deeper than simply addressing what we verbalize or what we express. We ought to bring to the Lord even the the deepest, most hidden pride of our hearts, Because our God knows them all the same. Matthew Henry put it this way. Thoughts are words to him. And whispers are loud cries. So knowing the reasoning of their hearts. Knowing just the depths of the depravity. Just how sinfully proud his 12 closest disciples are. What then does Jesus do? Does he just give up on them? All right, that's, that's, that's the last straw. Right? Like, I'm talking about being delivered into the hands of men, and you guys are talking about who is the greatest. I just, I just can't deal with this anymore. No, not at all. He patiently, lovingly rebukes and corrects them. He points out to them the foolishness of their ways that they might repent and grow. And to do that, he uses an object illustration He brings a a child by his side. He says, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives him who sent me. Now, what does that mean? 
Well, remember the context of the argument here. Jesus is responding to their argument about who is the greatest in terms of honor and rank and significance in the eyes of men. And so Jesus brings along a child who has no honor, no rank, no significance in the eyes of men. Children were viewed as weak and insignificant and unimportant back then. Only worth your time once they become grown adults who can actually do something for you. In the first century mindset that was obsessed with honor and rank and significance, like you were only supposed to receive and welcome a social equal or someone who was higher in honor and status than you, who could then in turn help you to get more honor and status. And so it made absolutely no sense to spend your time or energy or effort on a child who could do nothing to help you in terms of rising in the ranks. But here's where Jesus turns all of those social conventions upside down. The conversation here is about greatness. And with regards to greatness, it's actually whoever receives this child in my name. That's who is great. The act of receiving a child, someone who has nothing to give in terms of honor and status in this world... But receiving them simply because of Jesus, for Jesus' sake, that is true greatness. That kind of sacrificial love, that kind of service towards others with no ulterior motives, no hopes for worldly gain, but simply being a servant for Jesus' sake, lowering yourself and serving others simply because they belong to Jesus, that's what makes someone great. Why does that make you great? Because receiving someone like that for Jesus' sake means receiving Jesus. And receiving Jesus, well, that means receiving God the Father. And while that may not get you any status points with the world, according to their definition of greatness, like in reality, what could be greater than that greatness to have Jesus and the Father? And so you see how Jesus completely redefines greatness here. Greatness is not about the honor that others can bestow on you or comparing yourself with other people in terms of rank and status and significance, what the disciples thought it was all about. No, greatness is about lowering yourself, humbling yourself to serve and love others for no other reason than for Jesus' sake. Exemplified here in this object illustration by how you would receive a child. Now, society would look at that, receiving a child. Wait, wait a minute. Doing stuff like that? Serving and lowering yourself and receiving children? Like, that would make you the least. To which Jesus would reply, look at the end of verse 48. Well, in that case... Then he who is least among you is the one who is great. And so we see here the first failure by the disciples. In their pride, they're comparing themselves to one another, exalting themselves. And we see the first rebuke by Jesus. 
teaching them that greatness is not about exaltation and respect and getting honor. No, greatness is about serving and loving others for Jesus' sake. That's a lesson that these disciples badly needed to learn. And it's a lesson that we, as disciples, badly need to learn as well. From the least sanctified believer in this room to the most sanctified believer in this room, these are things that we need to hear because pride is such a pervasive sin, one that seems to affect and infect every aspect of our lives. And here's the thing. In a tragic irony, sometimes it's in our service for the Lord like in our ministries, in the church, among the people of God, that pride and comparison and self-exaltation can most clearly be manifest. And look at all that I've done for the Lord. Look at my offices and my titles. Listen to how my brothers and sisters praise me. Consider the people that I've discipled. See the ministries that I've helped to start. Maybe we wouldn't be as crude as the disciples here. But in essence, we're saying, don't you see it? Don't you see that I'm the greatest? And then we do exactly what the disciples do here. We compare ourselves to others. And that can lead to, well, either putting down other people in their service because we feel threatened by them, or looking down on other people because we feel like they're not in our league. Or maybe feeling slighted or jealous because that person's being recognized for something that I think I do just as well, if not better. Why don't people see my greatness? Just given a few examples here, things that I've wrestled with in my own heart, but you know the ways in which you have struggled with these sins. And so, friends, this is a word that we need to hear. But the key, the key is not just to identify our pride. It's also to hear Jesus' solution. To recognize that none of that stuff, regardless of how the culture around us might praise those things, self-exaltation, comparison, all of that stuff, that's not greatness anyway. True greatness is lowering yourself and serving others for Jesus' sake. And so the antidote to our pride, the cure for our pride, is as simple as serving others. Serving others with no ulterior motive of position or recognition or praise or status, but simply for Jesus' sake. So brothers and sisters, just very practically, let me encourage all of us to look for opportunities to serve that you know are going to be thankless and unrecognized. Like opportunities to lower yourself in humility and serve simply for Jesus' sake. Maybe that means serving in the nursery, literally receiving children in Jesus' name. Maybe that means helping in the rarely glorious labor of set up and clean up for dinners and meals. 
Maybe that means visiting a shut-in or a homebound saint or writing them a letter. Whatever it is, do it not to be elevated in anyone's eyes, even your own, but simply do it for Jesus' sake. Point number one, Jesus rebukes their pride. That brings us to point number two, in which Jesus rebukes their exclusivism. We see this in verses 49 and 50. You got some unnamed, unidentified guy. We have no idea who he is. John and the disciples, they see him casting out demons, and they try to stop him. A couple of questions we need to ask here. First, is this guy even a legit disciple? Like, is he just a a fraud exorcist uh, casting out demons in Jesus' name who should be stopped? You might be familiar with the story from the book of Acts. It's in Acts chapter 19. Uh, You've got these seven sons of Sceva. They're, They're trying to invoke the name of Jesus to cast out demons, but they're phonies, and so the demon's like, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the demon-possessed man basically beats them up and makes them flee naked, and that exposes them as frauds. So is this guy here in Luke 9, is he like the sons of Sceva? Is he, is he a false disciple like the ones that Jesus references in the Sermon on the Mount? Lord, Lord, did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? I think the answer to those questions is no. This guy seems to be legit. Like, if he was a phony and a, and a false disciple, well, you'd think that Jesus would approve of John stopping him, or at least say something against the man. But instead, Jesus says that this man is for you. I doubt he would use that kind of positive language about a false disciple. So suppose that this man really is a genuine disciple of Jesus. The second question then is, why did John and the other disciples try to stop him? Well, John tells us, we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Basically, here's this guy trying to do great works in Jesus' name, but he's not part of our group. He's not part of the twelve. He's not with us. And so this attempt to stop him comes from a form of exclusivism. We can do mighty works for Jesus. We've been given power and authority to drive out demons. But others, outsiders, they can't be doing that kind of stuff. And this really carries over from what we just said about pride. Because part of pride is trying to sort yourself out within your group. Right? Establishing the pecking order within your group, trying to get to the top of the twelve, if you will. But another part of pride is making sure that your group is the best as you try to rise up within it. Looking down on others and trying to prohibit them from doing what you're doing to protect your turf. We're the twelve. We're the only ones who should be doing this kind of stuff. You're not one of us. Who are you? But I think we can go even a step further than that. Because remember what just happened in the narrative that we studied last week, the previous scene. Some of the twelve 
were unable to cast out a demon. Now here comes this outsider, not one of us, and he's able to do what we could not. And so compounding this exclusivism is perhaps a little bit of rivalry, a little bit of jealousy, a little bit of insecurity. All of that mixes together and leads them to try to stop this man from doing works in Jesus' name. Which brings us then to a third question. Why does Jesus tell them to not stop the man? Well, this point, I think, is pretty simple. Just because this guy is not running in your circles, that doesn't mean he's not representing me. The one who's not against you is for you. He's for you because he's for me. And so Jesus rebukes their exclusivism by pointing out that he is perfectly capable of raising up a disciple outside of the twelve. Also giving others the power and authority that he's already given to the twelve. Working through them to do things like casting out demons. And as a matter of fact, in the very next chapter, Luke chapter 10, he's going to do that work through 72 others. And so John, listen, John. Yes, you have been put in a special and unique position as one of the twelve. But don't think that you somehow have this exclusive license or monopoly on ministry for my name. And so the big picture lesson here for the disciples, the rebuke to this second failure, is that they can't be so exclusive and territorial about ministry that they would prevent or discourage or belittle the work that God is doing through others outside of their own circle. It's not all that unlike a story we have from the book of Numbers. There's this account in Numbers chapter 11 where uh, these two guys named Eldad and Medad, uh, they, through the Holy Spirit's working, they're prophesying in the camp apart from the rest of the group that was with Moses. And so Joshua goes up to Moses. He's like, Moses, you've got to stop those guys. And you remember Moses' reply. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. Basically, the one who is not against you is for you. I think there's practical lessons here for all of us. Because exclusivism, provincialism, territorialism, tribalism, whatever you want to call it, basically this idea that my circle my group, my church, our associations, my denomination, we and we alone are the true servants of God. That's a temptation that's alive and well in 21st century Christianity. And I would say especially in Reformed circles like ours. We, perhaps unwittingly, uh, make the narrow road even narrower than it actually is. And we try to make the kingdom of God smaller than it actually is. Now, don't hear me wrong. I'm not saying that we should throw out all doctrinal differences and forget about the truth and just have this kind of mushy ecumenicalism in which anybody who calls himself a Christian should be welcomed as a brother. You can immediately see the dangers of that. To do that would mean necessarily tolerating false teachers, approving of heretics who would deny some of the fundamental truths of the faith. 
Such people should be excluded. The New Testament is full of warnings against such people. But at the same time, we need to have the wisdom, discernment, to distinguish between the primary issues on which we will not compromise, like firm lines have to be drawn here, and secondary issues on which two Christians who love the Lord Jesus and believe the same gospel, who are both going to heaven, can respectfully disagree. It's not that these secondary issues don't matter at all. They're important. We should search out the scriptures to discern the truth eagerly. After all, it is the secondary issues that play a major role in what church, right, among gospel-preaching churches, what church we end up joining. But differing on those secondary issues should not prevent us from acknowledging the grace of God at work in our fellow brothers and sisters. Like we ought to be able to rejoice in the work that God is doing through them, even if they don't line up exactly as we would theologically. Whether it's someone coming to faith and being baptized in a church that doesn't believe in the doctrines of grace, praise God. Or reading about the great missions work done by Presbyterians, praise God. Or gospel work happening in our own city from churches that we ourselves might not join? Praise God. Can we look at what God is doing outside of our little circle and wholeheartedly give God the glory? The First Baptist Church, the kingdom of God does not revolve around us. It does not revolve around our church. It does not revolve around our associations and networks. It does not revolve around our denomination. And if you think about it, That's a really good thing, because that would be a burden far too great for us to bear. The kingdom of God revolves around Jesus and his work. Point number two, Jesus rebukes their exclusivism. That brings us to the third rebuke of the section. Point number three, Jesus rebukes their mercilessness. Mercilessness. Let me read verses 51 and 52. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. So picture the map in your head here. The disciples are heading from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem, which is in the south region of Judea. Now, in between Galilee in the north and Judea in the south is this region of Samaria in the middle. Samaria, of course, is inhabited by Samaritans. And if there's one thing we know about Samaritans from the New Testament, it's that Jews and Samaritans don't get along. Where did they come from? Well, if you're familiar with your Old Testament history, you'll know that the northern kingdom of Israel was conquered by the Assyrians, 722 BC. Most of the Jewish people who were there were taken away as captives. And the Assyrians brought in all kinds of foreign people to resettle the land along with the Jews who remained. And so with a little bit of intermarriage and some mixing of religious practices, the product is this religion that's kind of like the worship of the true God, but also different in many ways. And so, for example, the Samaritans recognized the first five books of the Old Testament, but they rejected the rest. And they rejected Jerusalem 
but they instead worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And so all of that leads to a lot of tension between the Samaritans and then the Jews who would come back into the land later on. And so by the time Jesus comes on the scene, there's been centuries of tension and mutual hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans. It was so bad that a Jewish traveler who wanted to travel from Galilee to Judea, well, typically he would take the long way around the land of the Samaritans uh, lest they mingle with the hated people. But here Jesus takes a direct route. He goes right through Samaria, as he would on another occasion when he would run into a Samaritan woman by the well. Now, because they're a fairly large group, you've got Jesus, you've got the 12 disciples, you've got anybody else who's tagging along. And it's always nice to give a heads up when you've got a big group coming through. Like you would call ahead at a restaurant. Hey, we've got a, a big party coming through. That's exactly what he does here. He sends messengers ahead of him. But, verse 53, the Samaritans turn him away. Why? Well, perhaps in part because Jesus was a Jew and all his disciples are Jews and there's that pre-existing racial tension. But also, look again at the verse, the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. Remember, the Samaritans believe that true worship of God happens not at Jerusalem, but on Mount Gerizim. And so here comes this Jewish teacher. He and his group are going down to Jerusalem? We're not going to help you. You're on your own. Now, one thing we should note at this point, in that culture, in which... Travel was much more difficult and safe lodging is hard to find. Hospitality was a big deal. Much bigger than we might consider it today. And refusing to show hospitality was a big deal. Would have been a great offense, a great insult. And so when James and John see this, they are outraged. Their master has just been insulted. Their Lord has just been rejected. We're told elsewhere that these two brothers, they earned themselves the nickname Sons of Thunder. Like they're thundering here. Look at their suggestion in verse 54. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Now you might ask them, like, where'd you get that idea? Calling fire down from heaven? Remember where James and John just were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And remember who was with them on the Mount of Transfiguration. Elijah. You may be familiar with the story from 2 Kings chapter 1. King Ahaziah is sending soldiers to capture Elijah, surely to put him to death. And twice Elijah calls down fire from heaven to consume the soldiers and there's a third guy, and he's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't mess with this guy. And so he just begs for mercy, and so he's spared. But then again, that's Elijah. What makes James and John think that they can call for something like that? And you guys spend a couple of hours with Elijah on the mountain, and all of a sudden you, can, you, you think you can do Elijah things. It's, it's like the kid who watches a few superhero movies and all of a sudden thinks that he's Batman. But whether they could actually call for the fire or not, kind of a moot point, because Jesus isn't having any of that. 
James and John, sons of thunder. Certainly they're full of zeal and passion for Jesus' glory here. But have they already forgotten Jesus' teachings from the Sermon on the Plain? On how they were to treat those who hated them and cursed them and abused them. You remember Luke chapter 6, verses 27 and 28. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. And so he, verse 55, rebukes them. Yes, these Samaritans have just rejected the Son of God. And so if you take the flip side of the syllogism in verse 48, they have then rejected the Father too. That is a horrible sin that they've just committed. Is that worthy of judgment? Absolutely. Do they deserve to be consumed by fire? Yes, in the sense that all sin deserves the wrath and judgment of God. But this isn't the time, nor are those the means. Vengeance belongs to God. He will repay every unpaid-for sin at the judgment. For now, God, in his patience, in his kind mercy, in his long-suffering, he's going to give those Samaritans more time to repent. And perhaps, this is conjecture, but it's not completely out of the realm of possibility, perhaps some of those who were spared by Jesus' mercy on that day were around years later when a revival among the Samaritans broke out, Acts chapter 8, at the preaching of Philip. Many Samaritans were saved. Jesus came to extend mercy to those who deserve judgment. The disciples, especially James and John here, they don't seem to get that. And so once again, Jesus lovingly, patiently rebukes them. Friends, what wonderful news this rebuke contains for us. That Jesus is far more merciful than his disciples often are willing to be. I mean, just think about it. If we were all struck dead, like if fire was called upon us the very first time we rejected Jesus and his gospel, well, I'd imagine that none of us would be here today. And certainly the Apostle Paul wouldn't have lived long enough to make it to the Damascus Road. But thankfully, our God is a merciful and patient God. Far more merciful than we could imagine. Far more merciful than we ourselves are often willing to be. For he is a God who allowed us to continue to exist even as we sinned against him and rejected him over and over and over, that we might eventually be brought to faith and repentance. That he is patient towards us, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What then does that mean for his disciples? Well, Jesus himself said it best, Sermon on the Plain, be merciful as your father is merciful. No, James and John, we're not going to call down fire here. We're going to be merciful, even as your father is merciful. 
Point number three, Jesus rebukes their mercilessness. We've seen it pretty clearly in this passage that the adage is true. The best of men are men at best. The best of disciples are disciples at best. And disciples who need constant correction. But as we see here, disciples of a master who is constantly willing to give loving rebuke. One who bears with them in all their sins and shortcomings, patient with them in their repeated mess-ups. When they're arguing with each other about who is the greatest, point number one, Jesus rebukes their pride. When they're trying to stop other disciples from doing gospel ministry just because they're outside of their group, point number two, Jesus rebukes their exclusivism. When they're all too eager to call down judgment upon those to whom God intends to show mercy, point number three, Jesus rebukes their mercilessness. Jesus, through these rebukes, through these corrections, he shows himself to be the gracious, patient, loving teacher that all his disciples need. Indeed, faithful are the wounds of a friend. But, 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 all of that is true, but, friends, you and I, as disciples and followers of Jesus, the twelve, as disciples and followers of Jesus, we need more than just a gracious, patient, loving teacher. Because our problem isn't really that we just don't get things and we need to understand better. Our problem isn't really that we're just not as effective in our kingdom work as we could be because of our failures, and so we just need someone to show us the way. No, our problem, our biggest problem, is that our sin totally disqualifies us from the kingdom. That sins like our pride and our exclusivism and our mercilessness and so many more, they make us entirely unfit for heaven. And so we need more than just a teacher who's going to rebuke and correct and show us the way. Which brings us then back to a verse that we largely glossed over. Look at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Now this verse, Luke 9:51, it's basically the turning point of the book. Right? It transitions us from the Galilean ministry, which is everything from chapter 4 up to this point, uh, to now the journey towards Jerusalem, which is everything from this point all the way to Palm Sunday. But Luke 9:51 is more than just a section break. Luke 9.51 is a verse that reminds us once again of why Jesus came. Not ultimately to be a teacher. No, he came to seek and to save the lost. To die for our sins on the cross. Because why is it that Jesus had to go to Jerusalem? Why was he so resolute to go to Jerusalem, setting his face like a flint? Well, the first half of the verse tells us the days drew near for him to be taken up. 
So all of this is happening on a divine timetable. His hour is now drawing near. The hour in which he would lay down his life willingly on behalf of not just these disciples, save one, but all of his disciples for all of eternity. All the elect of God. The hour when he would die on a Roman cross, take upon himself all the sins of his people, and fire, so to speak, does come down from heaven and consume him as he bears the wrath of God for sinners like us. Where the mercy of God that we've been talking about, where the mercy of God finds its full manifestation as sinners like me and like you, we're forgiven, entirely forgiven of our sins because Jesus is punished in our place. Friends, it's ultimately that gospel, uh, only that gospel which addresses our greatest need. Because it's through that gospel right, that Jesus set his face to go to Jerusalem to endure the cross on our behalf. It's through that gospel that our sins can be forgiven that we can be made righteous. And so praise the Lord that he so patiently endures with his disciples through all their failings. And he graciously rebukes them so that they might learn. But even more than that, praise the Lord that he set his face to go to Jerusalem to die for all of our sins and failures so that we might be forgiven. As we've seen in this text, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but even more precious are the wounds of a friend of sinners. Father, we thank you for Jesus, that he resolutely set his face to go to Jerusalem, that he might save sinners like us, sinners who in spite of our desire to follow him, constantly find ourselves in sin, falling short, messing up. But in you there is forgiveness. In the gospel there is forgiveness. And so we look to Christ and we pray this in his name. Amen.